We're in Matthew chapter 22, verses 15 through 22. That's where we left off last week. And we're going to pick back up there. Let me read it to us. Matthew 22, verses 15 through 22. It says, Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true, that you are true, and teach the way of God truthfully. And you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you're not swayed by appearances. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Therefore render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. When they heard it, they marveled, and they left him and went away. Now, it's noticeable in our passage for tonight that the Pharisees and the Herodians are working together. If you know anything about who the Pharisees and the Herodians are, you'll understand they didn't partner together very often. The Herodians are Jews who are okay with the fact that Herod is in charge and controlling their area. They weren't a very religious group of Jews. They were more of a political type of group. And they loved the fact that the Romans were in charge and they had all this big government and all this stuff, and they were loving it. The Pharisees were a religious type of people, and they were really not liking the fact that Rome was in charge and Herod was in charge. And the Pharisees were wanting to get back under God's authority, as they would put it. By the way, for what we know about the Pharisees, why were the Pharisees wanting to get back under God's authority? So they would be an authority because they were the ones who would represent God and speak for God, and they wanted everybody to acknowledge them. Now, here are two different groups of people politically and religiously, but they're partnering together now to come and trap Jesus. Now, they had a common goal. They both wanted Jesus dead. Let me show you what I mean. Go to John chapter 11. We'll look at the Pharisees first. John chapter 11, verses 45 through 53 this is after he's raised, Jesus has raised Lazarus from the dead. In John chapter 11, verse 45, it says, Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into the one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Here again, you see the Pharisees' attitude and, you know... We're going to lose our position, oh, and our nation. And they plotted to put Jesus to death. Jump over to Luke chapter 13, and look what the scripture says in verse 31 about Herod's attitude toward Jesus. Luke chapter 13, look at verse 31. In Luke chapter 13, verse 31, the scripture says this, At that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. The reason the Pharisees and the Herodians are now partnering together is they have a common goal. They both want Jesus 
dead. The Pharisees want him dead so that they can get their position back. People are all of a sudden starting to follow Jesus and be impressed with him. And as you're going to see when we get to chapter 23 in two weeks, by the way, there's no Bible study next week because I'm going to be preaching in New Jersey. But then the week after that, when we get into chapter 23, you're going to see that Jesus is not afraid to, in public, tell the Pharisees that they're hypocrites. And the Pharisees aren't loving that. They used to be the ones that everybody looked up to, and now Jesus comes on the scene and makes them look bad. On top of that, Herod is not too excited about this Jesus guy as well, because Herod wants to make sure that everything's under control under his domain in his area. And this guy, Jesus, is causing a tumult amongst the people that he's in charge of, and he wants to deal with him as well. So they both come, and they uh, come and try to trap Jesus, because they think together... They both have different agendas. The Pharisees want Jesus to say that it's okay to pay taxes to Caesar so they can say he's not for a nation under God. The Herodians want him to say it's not okay to pay taxes to Caesar so they can accuse him of treason against high Rome, and they've got him. So they think they've got him. Whichever way he answers this question, we got him. If he says, don't pay taxes to Caesar, the Rhodians are going to get him. If they say, pay taxes to Caesar, and this tax that they're talking about was a poll tax, which the Jews, especially the Pharisees, hated, it meant that they were under the thumb or the authority of Rome. But if he says, don't pay it, like I said, the Herodians are excited. If he says, pay it, well, you're not devoted to God, and they think they've got him. So, Look at verse 16 real carefully. Look at how they come and word their question. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully, and you don't care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. Does anybody believe that? Do you think... If they really believed that everything he said was true and he taught the way of the truth truthfully, why are they trying to trap him in his words? At the same time, they know that he isn't swayed by people's opinions and they want him to just go ahead and put your foot in your mouth. So they say, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Like I just laid out for you, they think they've got him now with this question. So Jesus, though, interestingly, points out that Caesar's image is on the coin, but he doesn't even point it out. So he had them point it out. What, how did he do it? He said, tell me, whose image is on the coin? They, of course, say Caesar's. And then he says this, give to Caesar what's Caesar's and give to God what is God's. Now, I want you to hopefully take a second and allow the Holy Spirit to give us the understanding of the depth of what his response is. Remember, the Herodians are wanting him to say, don't pay taxes, so they can trap him. The Pharisees are saying, yes, pay taxes to Caesar, so then they'll say, well, he's not for a nation under God, he's for a nation under Rome and under Herod. And Jesus says, give to Caesar what's Caesar's, give to God what's God's. There's a couple things I want to pull out from here. First off, they think they have him trapped. But by saying, give to Caesar what's Caesar's, he takes care of the Herodians. And by saying, give to God what is God's, he takes care of the Pharisees. Do you see how he, he's, got them, he's answered both of them? But there's more to it than that. Now, before I show you the second aspect of what he's really saying, which I think is more applicable for us, I want to show you the hypocrisy of these Pharisees, which we're going to get to. And like I say, in two weeks when we gather back together, you're going to see Jesus talk about their hypocrisy. The Pharisees are wanting Jesus to say, 
that they don't, that he worships Herod and not God, so they can trap him up, right? Go real quickly to John chapter 19. Look what's about to happen when Jesus goes through his trial. John chapter 19, verses 12 through 16. Remember, they're wanting Jesus, if he says, pay your tax to Caesar, he's loyal to Herod, he's, he's loyal to Rome, he's not loyal to God. That's what they're going to say. But look at, what he, look at what happens in chapter 19 of John. Look at verses 12 through 16. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you're not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and he sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement in Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, behold, your king. They cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, we have no king, but who? But Caesar. Here are the religious people saying what they were wanting Jesus to say so they could say that he was wrong. And they themselves say the exact same thing just so many days later. Isn't that interesting? But here's what I really want to deal with. Jesus said, give to Caesar what's Caesar's and give to God what is God's. Now, I could take you on a whole long study of how the Bible's very clear in many, many places that we're to submit ourselves to the governing authorities because any governing authority over us has been instituted by God. You do know the scripture says that God's the one who determines who goes into power. You should be involved in the political process and all that. It's a privilege we have in America, but um, God's going to pick the next president. He may hold each of us accountable for how we vote when we stand before him, but he's going to pick. He's in control of all that stuff. And he's the one that set authority in place, and he does it for our good, but he also uses nations and governments to bring judgment and discipline when needed as well. You see that all throughout history, the nation of Israel as well. But give to Caesar what's Caesar's. We're not going to spend a lot of time on that. What I want to do tonight is I want to talk to you about give to God's what's God's. Whose image was on the coin? Caesar's. Whose image is on you? If we're to give to Caesar what Caesar's, because his image is on the coin, we're to give to God what is God's, and his image is on us. What does he want from us? What are we to give to God? Ourselves. You don't have to turn there, but you do know that Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27 says that God made male and female in his image. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Look at verse 15. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 15. And he died for all, this is Jesus, he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. I'm going to ask you a question. See, Jesus didn't just say, give to Caesar what's Caesar's. He also said, to take care of the Pharisees who thought he wasn't pro-God, he said, give to God what is God's. And at the same time, he was making a command. Give to God what is his. The whole earth is his. 
Every one of us have been made by God. That's why in the book of James, when it's talking about not treating each other badly, he said, why would you curse man who's made in the image of God? Folks, let me just say something to you that we need to understand. We have a tendency to fall into a pharisaical attitude of thinking we're better than other people in the world. And those sinners that are out there and they're acting in a... You know what? They're made in God's image just like you were and He loves them just as much as He loves you. Would you not agree that God sent Jesus to die for your sins? He died for theirs too. We pray that they would respond to that grace and that offer of salvation, but don't think for a second that God loves you more now. The only difference between us and those who are outside of Christ is the fact that we get to experience the full extent of God's love. His wrath has been totally removed. But don't think for a second that He loves you more than somebody that's going to hell. He loves the people in hell just as much as He loves you. They're just missing out on the full extent of that benefit of His love. You all know Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. Paul said, I have been crucified with Christ. What's the next part? I, yet, I don't longer live, yet not I, but Christ who lives within me. I'm going to just challenge you tonight and just leave it at that. I'm learning as a preacher to let the Holy Spirit work on application. Give to God what is God's. If Caesar's image was on the coin and there to give to Caesar what Caesar's, whose image is on you? Give him your life. Not just for salvation, but also on a daily basis. We're to live a surrendered life. Lord, you purchased me with your blood. I've been bought with a price. I'm not my own. I'm no longer to live for myself, but for the one whose image is on me. My true worship is to give you my life. That means, Lord, you get to determine who I marry. You get to determine what I do for work. You get to determine what my spiritual gifts are in the church. You get to determine my life. And it's not something you're just going to just drop on me all at once and I'm going to go try to do it. You're going to let me know a little bit here and a little bit there on a daily basis as I lay my life before you. You've heard me say it. I'll say it over and over. The end of chapter 11 of Romans. Who's ever known the mind of God? Who's ever been his counselor? He's just gone on and said that you can't ever figure God out. But when you get into chapter 12, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, for you King James folks, there you go. Beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, which is your reasonable service or your spiritual act of worship. We're on a daily process supposed to surrender our flesh to the Lord. But, oh, the rest of that verse goes on and says, then you'll be able to know what his good, pleasing, and perfect will is. Folks, did you catch that? You'll never figure God out. Stop thinking you know what his plans are for you. You don't, but you will be revealed on a daily basis how to walk with him. And I've said it for years, and I'll say it again. If you walk with Jesus every single day of your life, you'll end up exactly where you're supposed to be when you're supposed to be there. Let's go to chapter 22 and look at verses 23 through 46. The same day, same day that the Herodians and the Pharisees had just come to Jesus, same day Sadducees came to him and who, who say that there is no resurrection. They asked him a question saying, Teacher, Moses said if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died and having no offspring left his wife to his brother. So too the second and third down to the seventh and after them all the woman died. 
In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. But Jesus answered, you are wrong. He answered them, you are wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. Now the Sadducees come to try to trip Jesus up in his words and build themselves up over the Pharisees in the process since the Sadducees didn't believe in a resurrection to come and the Pharisees did. You see, the Pharisees had just tried to trip him up and the Pharisees had failed. So the Sadducees say, here's our chance now. We're going to trip him up because we've got an answer we know we can't answer. And we're going to prove that our theology is correct over the Pharisees' theology. See, the Pharisees believed in a resurrection of the dead, which the Old Testament and the Bible talked about. But at the same time, the Sadducees, as you just saw here, didn't believe. They believed that once you died, that was it. There was no resurrection. So what they said was, well, the law of Moses said that if a man dies and he's produced no offspring, his brother is to marry his wife and produce a child for the brother, so the family name will continue. You all know it. It's called the law of leveret marriage. And you've ever read the book of Ruth? The whole Ruth and Boaz story is that law of leveret marriage. A relative, a near relative, it's a picture of Jesus, our kinsman redeemer, was to marry her and produce an offspring. Well, well, let me just read the law to you. Go with me to Deuteronomy 25. Look at verses 5 through 10. This is where they, they quote from. In Deuteronomy 25, look at verses 5 through 10. It says, if brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. And if a man doesn't wish to take his brother's wife, then his brother's wife shall go up to the gate to the elders and say, My bro husband's brother refuses to perpetuate his brother's name in Israel. He will not perform the duty of a husband's brother to me. Then the elders of his city shall call him and speak to him. And if he persists, saying, I don't wish to take her, then his brother's wife shall go up to him in the presence of the elders and pull off his sandal off his foot, spit in his face, and she shall answer and say, So shall it be done to the man who does not build up his brother's house. And the name of his house shall be called in Israel the house of him who had his sandal pulled off. So the Sadducees, who don't believe in a resurrection, think that this scripture proves that there's no resurrection. You see, because here the law said, if a man dies having produced no children, the brother was to marry the woman. They designed a straw man type of a, an idea, and they had seven brothers in a row marry this woman, and none of them were able to produce an offspring. They all died. By the way, I'm pretty sure the, one, the fifth or sixth in the row probably wasn't too excited about walking down the aisle, if everyone that marries her dies, but it's just in, their, in their, their story, they're all dying off, and they say, in the resurrection, if there's a resurrection, is what they're really saying, in the resurrection, whose wife will she be? We got you, Jesus. I love his answer. And there's something in his answer that you don't really see unless you know something else about the, Pharise the Sadducees. The scripture tells us they don't believe in a resurrection. 
There's also something else about the Sadducees you don't know, but you should, or maybe you do. Go with me to Acts chapter 23. Look at verses 6 through 8. And all of a sudden, Jesus' response to them is going to take on a whole new meaning. Acts chapter 23, look at verses 6 through 8. He's being tried, as you know, in this passage here. And when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It's with respect to the hope of the resurrection of the dead that I'm on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. The Sadducees didn't only not believe in a resurrection of the dead, they didn't believe there was a spiritual realm. They didn't believe there were angels, which is very hard to believe if you read the Old Testament. So what does Jesus say to them when he, they come up with this proof that there's no resurrection? By the way, let me just say this to you real quickly. Beware of using a passage of Scripture to back up your preconceived notion. Too many people believe something so strongly, God must believe it too, and they'll look for a verse that seems in their mind to prove that what they think is true. You've heard me say it over and over and over. Never, ever, ever build your theology on a verse of Scripture. You need to use the whole of Scripture, the whole counsel of God, and that way you'll be able to come to a more right, correct interpretation of God's Word. He says, you are wrong because you don't know the Scriptures nor the power of God. By the way, I'm just going to say to you, Jim Johnson included, that's why most of us make our mistakes. Because we don't know the Word of God, nor do we believe in the power of God and understand the power of God. I see many Christians today who hold firm to God's Word, but they deny the Holy Spirit's power in today's world. There are some people that are so, they're so fundamental they just stick with the Word of God. There are some people that don't believe that God speaks anymore. There are those, and you'll run into those, who think God has already spoken. We've got the conclusion of His Word, and I don't believe He's going to add anything new. But the Bible does say in 1 John chapter 4 that you're to test the spirits to see whether or not they're from God. If God's Spirit is not speaking anymore, we don't need to test the spirits, because every spirit that speaks to me would be a demon spirit, because God's not speaking and there are those who deny the spiritual realm and the power of God. Oh, they're fundamental in the Word of God, even though the Scripture talks about how the Spirit told Philip to go over to the chariot and how the Holy Spirit wouldn't let Paul go into Asia. And the Bible says we're to live led by the Spirit. There are those who are so fundamental and solid on the Word of God that they deny His power. Oh, there are others, though, on the other side who focus on the power of God through His Holy Spirit but they usually end up in error because they don't check some of their quote-unquote teaching against the whole of Scripture. There are some Christians that are so out there when it comes to the power of God and the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit's work that they don't realize that they fall prey to a lot of false teaching because they don't check what they're being taught against the Word of God. Folks, I could spend the whole rest of tonight just giving you examples, but again, I believe in the power of the Holy Spirit to speak to you where He wants to. We're in error a lot because we don't know the Scriptures nor the power of God. Jesus takes them back to the scripture to remind them of how God, when God revealed himself to Moses, 
spoke of dead Abraham, dead Isaac, and dead Jacob as being alive. Go back there with me. Go to Exodus chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3. Look at verses 1 through 6. He says, have you not read, do you not remember what God said when he spoke about these guys who had been dead for a while? Exodus chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. It's where God reveals himself to Moses at the burning bush. It says, Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness, and he came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he had turned aside to see, God called him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not come here. Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place in which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he's afraid to look at God. Notice closely what Jesus or what God does not say. He does not say, I, I was the God of those guys, and I'm your God too. He doesn't speak like they're dead. I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Jesus says, hey, first off, don't you know what the scripture says? How God spoke of like they, the fact that they were alive. He's not a God of the dead, but of the living. And then he also made this statement. He said, when we go in the resurrection, we're going to be like the what? Do you think it was an accident that Jesus said we were going to be like the angels? He knew that their theology was that there was no angels. And he even threw that one in there because he even took them deeper than they wanted to go. And deeper than they wanted to go and deep, as deep as he knew they needed to go. For years we've heard people wrestle over this passage and and, I, and myself, having been married to Becky for 30 years, it's hard sometimes to fathom that when we're in the new world, what it's going to be like to know her and not know her as my wife. But folks, let me just tell you, I think that's further evidence of how awesome heaven is going to be. That as much as I love being married to Becky and can't fathom not knowing her as my wife, that our relationship is going to be so amazing and so glorious that that won't even matter. I'm going to tell you right now on this earth, it matters because it's not good for Jim to be alone. But at the same time, the marriage relationship on this earth is for procreation as well. And there's no need for that when we're in heaven. Let me just say, Jesus points out to them, you're in error because you don't know the scriptures nor the power of God. Go with me to Luke, oh, sorry, Mark chapter 12. I haven't done this for a while. I want to take you to Mark's account of this section. For a stretch, when we were going through Matthew, I was doing it a lot. But I didn't want to do it too, too much, because you have the ability to go check the other gospel accounts as well. But Mark's account of this is pretty cool. I want you to see something. Mark chapter 12, look at verses 18 through 27. It says, And Sadducees came to him who say there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies... And leaves a wife, but no child. The man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. 
In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. Jesus said to them, is, is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God? For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry or given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Now as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? He is not God of the dead, but of the living. I love this. You are quite wrong. Now, those of you that just read that with me, help me out. Did the Sadducees ask the question like they didn't believe there was a resurrection? Or did they ask the question like they believed that there was a resurrection? They, wrote, they worded the question like they believed that there was a resurrection. We believe in a resurrection. We just were kind of curious. And Jesus saw right through it. By the way, the Lord knows you too. He knows your heart. He knows why you do what you do. He loves you anyway. But don't be surprised when God tries to deal with you. Have you, you know, I was telling some people at dinner tonight, I dated a girl years and years ago named Mary, back when my dad was an interim pastor in New Hampshire at a church, and I met her at this church, and we dated for a brief period of time. And Mary and her dad, every time I'd go over to their house, they would get into fights. You know why? Because Mary and her dad were almost identical in personality. And the things that Mary didn't like about herself, she saw them in her dad. The things that he didn't like about himself, he saw in Mary. And they would take, them out on, take it out on each other. When they didn't like something about themselves, they'd see it in their the other relative and take it out on them. Let me say something to you. Most of the time, when you are complaining about people around you, God's going to talk to you about you. And the things you notice and the things that bug you are actually going to be used of the Holy Spirit to talk to you about you. So the sooner that you and I both come to the realization of God will take care of them. What's he trying to teach me? The sooner you'll get through whatever lesson it is that he's going to walk you through. But the more you keep complaining about the people around you and the people around you and the people around you, the more you're going to miss out on what God's really trying to do because he knows your heart. But I also want you to notice how Jesus just gave them scripture and left it. He didn't get into a debate. Remember last week, we, we, we ended up with the fact that we aren't to be showing everybody how much we know and getting into discussions, how the enemy uses that to trap us. And I warned you about getting into all these debates on the Internet and social media and Facebook and all this stuff. But just share the scripture and let the Lord take care of it and let him finish what he's starting and what he's doing in their lives. In doing so, I ran across something that's kind of cool, and this, is, this isn't even in my notes, this is free for you all. Go with me to Ecclesiastes. I, I don't know why, God will show me in time. I think I have a little bit of an idea, but I don't fully know why. But God's been having me just for myself, knowing me it'll end up being a sermon series, but just for myself, I've been feeling like God wants me to meditate on Ecclesiastes over the last couple of weeks.
Look at chapter 5. Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. For they don't know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you're on earth. Therefore let your words be few. For a dream comes with much busyness, and a fool's voice with many words. If you do vow a vow to God, don't delay in paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It's better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin. Do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one you must fear. Folks, I think it's time we start allowing the Spirit of God to get deep in us. Doesn't the Bible say in the book of James that we're to be quick to listen and slow to speak? All through the Scripture, we see people pretending to be wise. And we have that same problem as well. And Christians today love to put on how much they know. I'm going to challenge you to allow the Holy Spirit in each of your lives, mine included, how it's supposed to be applied. Begin to show you when to speak and when not to speak. And you're going to find not speaking is probably what he's going to have you do most of the time. And when you do speak, you'll know what to speak. Many words. There's a lot of folly. You've heard me say for years, the whole idea of dreaming big things for God, going to achieve great things for God, it sounds good, but the scripture says that it's making vows that we can't pay. Don't come to church that way. Don't daily live that way. Believe that your God is powerful enough to get his stuff done. Actually, he, if you died today, everything's going to happen right on schedule. I'm going to say this in love. Get over yourself. But the Pharisees and the Herodians and the Sadducees all think they're right and they're jockeying for position and using Jesus for that purpose. The Bible says that we're to just share God's truth with people and leave the convincing to the Scriptures and the Holy Spirit. If I were to ask you to quote with me, you could do it. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 and 13. The Word of God is what? Is living, is active, sharper than a two-edged sword, able to divide between soul and spirit, joints and marrow. Nothing is hidden from the heart of, of, of God. You know, man's heart is nothing is hidden and all will be disclosed. We all believe that, right? Do we? Or do you think that the Holy Spirit and the Scripture needs you to explain it to somebody? Word of God's able to get stuff done. Share the Scripture and let the work of the Spirit and the Word do its work. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. Go ahead and turn there. 2 Timothy 3. Again, another very familiar passage that many of us could quote. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. 
that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Scripture is powerful by itself. I know many of you have come to realize over the years that I don't really say a whole lot. I just bomb you with scriptures. I think that's my job as a preacher and a teacher. Have you ever noticed in the New Testament, Paul would do this a lot where he would just say, look what it says here, look what it says here, and he'd quote from Isaiah and then quote from Genesis. And quote The Hebrew writer, whoever the Hebrew writer is, is and, and, and that's the whole point. Some of you are like, I'll tell you afterwards, Jim, I know who the Hebrew writer is. Get over yourselves. The Hebrew writer would say, have you not read? Look at what it says here. Look at what it says here. Folks, we're to be people who know the word, love the word. And then if you want to be used of God to have an input and influence in someone's life, take them to the scriptures. I had the privilege today at Men in Motion to preach about this a little bit. And we went and looked at how David was hiding from Saul in the wilderness of Ziph. And Jonathan finds him. And it says he strengthened his hand in God. And all Jonathan did when he found David was come and encourage him with what God had already promised. You've been anointed to be the next king. You will not die. Saul will not kill you. You will be the next king. And then Jonathan went back to his house. Folks, do you really believe God's word's powerful enough? See, that's one of the mistakes I made when I was a pastor of a church. When families or people would come with a problem, and I still struggle with it a little bit today, when they come with a problem, they would almost act like they wanted me to fix it. And I want you to like me. So I'm going to try to fix it. Do this, and maybe they do this. And I've come to realize over the years that sometimes when I'm trying to tell you what to do, I'm playing the role of the Holy Spirit, and I don't believe God's able to get you there. My role was to come alongside of you, say, I'm sorry that you hurt. I hurt with you. But here's what God's Word says. You have to figure out what He wants you to do in this situation. Jesus just shared the Scripture. Go to Luke 16. In Luke 16, verses 27 through 31. Jesus tells a story. I don't believe it's a parable here because they got names. I believe the way he tells it, these are people that they, the hearers wouldn't recognize. In Luke 16, verses 27 through 31. We get Lazarus and the rich man, and of course, as you know, the rich man looks and sees Lazarus and tells him, you know, hey, to, tells Abraham, hey, tell him to stick his finger in water and come cool my tongue. And Abraham says there's a chasm betwixt the two of us, can't pass back and forth. Look at verse 27. He said, then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to them, if they don't hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Did you catch that? Here's what has to happen. Someone has to go talk to them. Actually, God's word's been going out for a long, long time. They've heard it. Well, how can they hear unless someone preaches to them? It says in Romans 10, Jim. Oh, keep reading. Just like three or four verses later, it says, have they not heard? Of course they did. His word has gone out into all the earth. How many of you have gotten mad at somebody because they didn't go, a preacher maybe even, because he didn't go visit somebody you wanted him to visit because that person needed to hear about Jesus and the preacher didn't get there and they died and it's his fault.
God's getting his stuff done. Everybody hears. He may want to use you and me, and sometimes we do miss out on reward when we say no, when the Spirit's leading us to share with somebody. But don't think for a second that if I don't tell you, you're not going to hear. God's way bigger than that. And as much as he uses us for his glory, he doesn't need us for a second. He's not served by human hands if he needed anything, Acts 17, 25 says. So folks, I just want to encourage you. Don't think it's your job to fix the situation. Share with them what God has said and leave it. Now the Pharisees come back at Jesus by themselves. Go back now to chapter 22. Look at verses 34. Through 40. The Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees. They gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? He said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend, on, so depend all the law and the prophets. Now, before we go any further, I want us to read Mark's account of this as well. Go to Mark chapter 12. Look at verses 28 through 34. We're going to put both Matthew and Mark's accounts together, and it'll help us kind of figure out what's going on a little bit better here. Mark 12, starting in verse 28. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, You're right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you're not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Mark's account gives us a little bit more insight and shows one of these scribes coming and he's starting to get it. See, the rabbis taught that there were 613 laws in the Pentateuch. By the way, the Pentateuch is the first five books of the Old Testament written by Moses. They had actually sat down and counted. There were 613 thou shalt, if you will, or thou shalt not. But from there, the scribes would all argue over which ones were the heavy ones and which ones were the light ones. Which are the most important, which were the least important or less important. Some of you were raised in a denomination that were taught that some sins were mortal sins and other sins were venial sins. We all have a tendency to figure out, well, what's the more important? Because I'm not going to do them all. It's kind of like when my wife hands me her honey-do list. Which one will make you the happiest? Because I don't see this all happening. They're trying to trip Jesus up. But they're also trying to figure out whose side he was on. Go back to Matthew 22 again and look at what it says. Look at verse 34. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. All right. He's made us look bad when we're the Herodians, but the Sadducees looked real bad. He said they were quite wrong. Here's our chance. Whose side are you on? 
ours or theirs? By the way, what is God's answer whenever you ask him whose side he's on? It's the same answer he gave Joshua. Remember when Joshua met Jesus there in the theophany there right before he goes to defeat Jericho? And he said, whose side are you on, ours or theirs? And the answer was, neither. My own, I'm my own team. The question is, are you on my side? So no one could accuse him of unorthodox theology. Jesus, as we see in Mark's account, quotes from the Shema. That's what he does. When he says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Go there real quickly with me. Go to Deuteronomy 6 and look at verses 4 and 5. There were them, some who were wanting to see whether or not he was orthodox in his teaching. Because they had already decided what orthodox was. And now it's a matter of whether or not Jesus meets, his, meets their requirements for orthodox. So to calm them down, he quotes from what the Orthodox Jews would quote every single day. They would say this every day. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might or all your strength. And here we see in the Shema that to love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's why the scribe comes and says, you're good and right in saying what you said, because there is only one God. But then the second one, many of you would say, I don't see love your neighbor as yourself in the Ten Commandments. We know in the Ten Commandments we're to have no other gods beside God. But actually he quotes not from the Ten Commandments for the second one. He quotes from Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. Go back up a couple of books here. Go from Deuteronomy to Leviticus and look at chapter 19. Look at verse 18. In Leviticus 19, 18, it says, You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Jesus says, you want to know what the greatest commandment is? You want to know which one's heavy, which one's light, which ones can be ignored, which ones can be, have to be done? Let me just tell you, I've summed up the whole law and the prophets into two. You love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you love your neighbor as yourself, guess what? You will have kept all of them. If you do these two, you will do them all. Because if you love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, you'll keep the first four of the Ten Commandments. And if you love your neighbor as yourself, you'll keep the other six. Actually, you'll keep all the law because you were keeping these two. And you've heard me say this for years, and I'm going to remind you of it. Folks, get over the whole measuring. If your church is growing, and whatnot, you have more in choir practice than last week, and numbers, get over that measurement of growth. Cancer grows fast. That doesn't mean it's healthy. The scriptures don't teach measuring numbers to measure spiritual growth. The scriptures teach that we're to focus on loving God with everything we have and getting to know him more and loving each other and everything else falls into place. And I want to just tell you, is that what's going on in your church? Then you've got a healthy church. Is that what's going on in your life? You're getting to know Jesus more on a daily basis and you're actually noticing that relationship with Jesus as it manifests its reality and your love for him increases because you get to know him more. The more you know him, the more you're going to love him. Let me just tell you that right now. And it starts splashing out on the people around you, then you're doing great. You're doing great. That's why the scripture says that we're to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Peter, when he wrote to his first book in 1 Peter chapter 2, he says craves pure spiritual milk that you might grow by there. 
thereby. Now, he also, at the end of his second letter in 2 Peter, in verse 18, chapter 3, verse 18, says, Grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we should be doing. Like Paul said earlier, we looked at hungering and thirsting for more and more, forgetting what's behind, straining toward what's ahead. And folks, all through the scriptures, the Bible says that the real manifestation of our walk with Jesus is a hunger for more of Jesus and a love for each other. Write these down because we don't have time to go there. But in Colossians chapter 1, I'm going to read them to you real fast. If you want to try to follow along with me, go right ahead because I love it if you check everything I say against the Scriptures. Colossians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. Listen to what it says. It says, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you since we've heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints. Jump over to chapter 1 of Ephesians. Back up a couple of books to Ephesians chapter 1. Listen to verse 15. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love toward all the saints. Galatians chapter 6, back up one book, chapter 6, verse 10. So then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Folks, the Bible is very, very clear that we should be knowing Jesus more. In all these places where Paul said, I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love toward all the saints. If you were to keep reading those books, you'll notice they said, keep doing it more. Keep doing it more. He even says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 9 and 10, I don't even have to teach you about the love of God because God himself is teaching you, but I'm going to encourage you to do it more and more. Go to 1 John chapter 4. First John chapter 4, look at verses 7 through 12 and then 20 and 21. 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 12. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. And anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. No one's ever seen God. But if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Jump down to verse 20. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who doesn't love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Let me say it to you as much as I can say it. Stop measuring numbers for your growth. Is your church... Are you growing in your faith in the Lord Jesus and love for each other? That's it. By the way, you're going to find Christianity is a blast if you're not worrying about all the other stuff, whether or not the church is meeting budget or whether or not the membership rolls or what it needs to be and all this kind of stuff and whether or not the kids are running in the halls or whether or not the gym has been mopped. If you give, get away from what we think church is now, and you just find out what it is that Jesus has gifted you to be and what part of the body you are, and you just love the people around you with the gift you've been given, and you just get to know Jesus more, and you stop going to business meetings, you will find Christianity is a blast. We've turned church into something God never designed. We've got seven minutes, and I think we can do it. At the end of chapter 22, Jesus turns the tables on them. Go to Matthew 22, verses 41 through 46. <clears throat> now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question. 
Isn't that interesting? They've been asking him questions. Now he has one for them. He says, what do you think about the Christ? This is the Messiah. Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. He said to them, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. Now, Jesus is not saying that they were wrong in calling the Messiah the son of David. If you remember from, Gen- sorry, from Matthew chapter 1, in Matthew chapter 1, it actually says at the beginning, Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, and so on. That was a very biblical term, and for the sake of time, I won't show you many of the Old Testament references that talked about the coming Messiah as the son or descendant of David. But Jesus knows that when they call the Messiah the son of David, they're looking for a human. And Jesus now starts to go deeper, and he says, let me ask you a question. Um, If the Messiah, the Christ, coming after David is a son of David, why does David, in the Spirit, when he writes Psalm 110, verse 1, that's where Jesus quotes from, Psalm 110, verse 1, when he writes in Psalm 110, verse 1, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet, Why does David call him Lord then? If it's his kid or a descendant of his, why does he use the name for God? And they're like, oh, dip. By the way, I can get you started. You can quote it with me. You know, Isaiah says, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor. What's the next part? Almighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. The Old Testament had said all along that Messiah wasn't just going to be a man. Oh, he was going to come and he'd be a descendant of David. But the prophecies all said that he would be God. They didn't want that. See, because the Messiah comes on and he's going to get them out from under control of Rome and he's going to write things. But in the Pharisees' mind, they're still going to rule in their flesh with him. Even the disciples said, who's going to sit on your right? Who's going to sit on your left? Go to John chapter 1. I just, there might be some people here tonight that have never had the Spirit of God open their eyes to this truth, or He has, and they've not dealt with it. <clears throat> Either way, I'm just going to let the Scripture speak. Folks, if you believe that Jesus was a man, you, you're only half right. Yes, he did live on this earth, and yes, he is coming back, but Jesus wasn't just a man. He was God himself in the flesh. In John chapter 1, verse 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jump down to verse 14. And the Word that was with God and is God became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jump down to verse 18. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side... He has made him known. Folks, all along the scripture said that the promised Messiah would be God. And Jesus is now putting it in front of him and saying, okay, you're looking for this Messiah to be a man. How come David called him God? Go to John chapter 8. Look at verses 48 through 59. John chapter 8, verses 48 through 59. 
The Jews answered him, saying, Are we not right in saying that you're a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I don't have a demon. But I honor my father and you dishonor me. Yet I don't seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he's the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Now the Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he'll never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham, who died, and the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It's my father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him, I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you, but I do know him and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you're not even 50 years old and you've seen Abraham. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. They picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. When Moses met God at the burning bush, he said, what's your name? So when I go tell the Jews that their God sent me, he said, my name is and forever will be known as I am. And when Jesus said before Abraham was born, I am, folks, Jesus claimed to be God. Let me close with one last passage. We're going to make it. You got a minute or so many seconds left in the minute. Go to Luke 22. Look at verses 66 through 71. Luke 22, 66 through 71. Luke 22, verse 66, when the day came, the assembly of the elders and the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council. This is Jesus. They led him away to their council, and they said, if you are the Christ, this is the Messiah, tell us. But he said to them, if I tell you, you won't believe. And if I ask you, you won't answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they all said, are you the Son of God then? Don't miss what he said. He said, the Son of Man, using the term for the Messiah, which they used, the Son of Man, will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. They knew exactly what he was saying. They said, so are you the Son of God then? He says, you say that I am. Then they said, what further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. Why did they want him dead? Because he claimed to be God. Stick with me as we close. Are you willing to let him be God? Because we would all say, well, I believe that Jesus is God. I believe he was man. I believe he was God. I believe Jesus is God now. Great. Is he Lord? Is he God? Does he get to call the shots? Or are you going to be like the rest of the religious people who believe in God, read the Bible, but have already made up your mind who God is and how he's supposed to work, and you will now make God fit your preconceived notion? Or are you willing to surrender to whatever it is he's talking to you about and allow him to have control in that area? Oh, take your eyes off the people around you. Don't be thinking right now about all the people in your church that really could have used this message. And let me ask you this question. Is he God in your life? I love you. Thanks for coming. We'll see you in two weeks.